So, we're here in 1 Samuel chapter 25. And you know that David has been having problems with King Saul. And he's been reacting on a very high, noble level. Saul is the anointed of the Lord. David says, don't touch him. He's the anointed of the Lord. But David is also the anointed of the Lord. And as such, they're kind of dealing on the same level. This level of obeying God, being a king. All right? But what happens when David has a problem with somebody who is way below him? This is not a social equal. This is someone who is big in his own eyes, but he's really a nothing. He's actually worse than a nothing. He's a twerp. He is an irritation. His very existence provokes you to want to kill him. How do you deal with this guy? Well, you deal with any fool with wisdom and humility, whether he's a king or a dope. That's what we're looking at today. Here's what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 25. Is anybody interested in this? Does anybody have to deal with dopes? Okay, this could be helpful. It says, then Samuel died, and the Israelites gathered together and lamented for him and buried him at his home in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail, and she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was of the house of Caleb. Now, we notice that Samuel dies there in verse one. And there's more to say about this, but I'll get to it later. In the first part here, we're introduced to this fool who thinks he's somebody. Now, the name Nabal means fool. Who in the world knows why a parent names their children anything? How did you end up with the name that you have? Aren't you glad your parents didn't say, well, I think we'll call him fool. What do you think, honey? And she goes, oh, I, I think absolutely fool. We'll call him that. Wow. But he is a rich man, and he has evidently a lot of pull, power, in his community. Because you notice he lives in one place, but he has business in another. 
And in, in these days, one way to measure your wealth is by how many livestock you have. And he owns a lot there. And because he grazes his flocks in Carmel, it's possible and likely that he owns land there. That's another measure of how well you're doing. But we notice that uh, having wealth and having heritage does not guarantee greatness. You notice at the end of verse three, he's of the house of Caleb. And what that means is he is descended from one of the two people who left Egypt under Moses and actually went into the promised land. Out of upwards of two million people who left Egypt in the nation of Israel, only two guys made it in 40 years later. And one of them was Caleb. So this is an honorable house that he comes from. And yet greatness doesn't derive from material abundance. Greatness is a thing of character. And it doesn't really matter how many resources you have to be considered great. Now, Caleb is an amazing ancestor, but you don't inherit greatness. Is everybody clear on that? Now, Nabal is selfish, and he's mean, and he's stingy. And he also thinks he's somebody because he's wealthy. He's not somebody. He's just an arrogant, rich guy. Did you run into any arrogant, rich guys on your way over to church today? They drive big cars. It's easy to spot them. Okay. Notice we also meet his wife, Abigail. She's on the other end of the spectrum. She's beautiful, and she has good understanding. And she is distinguished by the understanding. Do you notice that? Beauty is empty and nothing without understanding. Otherwise, you're just a pretty girl, and the world is full of beautiful women. Have you noticed? But a lot of them are doing really dumb things because they're beautiful. And without understanding, that beauty is nothing. You know, there's a proverb that says, like a ring of gold in the snout of a swine is a beautiful woman who lacks understanding. But she's not like that. She is distinguished by understanding. And I think this had to be an arranged marriage. Because with her understanding, there is no way that she would have picked to marry a mean, stingy guy like Nabal. 
It was arranged. Her parents thought it was a good idea, and there she is, married to this guy. So, reading between the lines here, she needed all the wisdom and understanding she could possibly get to live with this guy. And she had to grow in that to survive in this marriage. Beauty would not have gotten her through her difficulties. Can you imagine a few difficulties being married to a mean, stingy, rich guy? All right. Having set the scene, we move on in verse 4. When David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent ten young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say to him, who lives in prosperity, Peace be to you, peace to your house, and peace to all that you have. Now I've heard that you have shearers. Your shepherds were with us, and we did not hurt them. Nor was there anything missing from them all the while that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son, David. So when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in the name of David and waited. Then Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away each one from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men whom I do not know where they are from? So David's young men turned on their heels and went back, and they came and told him all these words. Then David said to his men, Every man gird on his sword. So every man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went with David, and 200 stayed with the supplies. David is asking for reciprocation, and he gets insulted. This sheep shearing time is like harvest time for the flocks. That's when you get the wool and you can sell it and make your money. It's a festive time of year. So David is thinking it's a good time of year to ask for a little reciprocation. And the reason for that is in verse 15, which we haven't read yet, but it says, the men were very good to us. Uh, blah, 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 blah. The men were very good to us, and we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. So it seems like Nabal's shepherds, with three thousand flock and another thousand goats, were kind of finding out that whoa, David and his men are in the area, and so they got a little closer to David. 
And they found that, gosh, having guys that are armed around you is a good idea. The sheep aren't going missing. Hey, do you guys mind if we hang with you? We're just shepherds. We're not going to do anything. And David's guys say, I don't care. David hears about it. He goes, fine with me. You know, he's a shepherd himself. He understands that whole scene. And so Nabal's guys kind of follow David and his men wherever they go around, and they, they like it that way. It's safer. And David starts thinking, well, you know, what goes around comes around. And we're looking out for you. Maybe you'll look out for us. Does that seem far-fetched? So David now kind of sends to Nabal and says, look, this is the way things have been. And things are going pretty good for you right now, so how about sending a little bit of that niceness our way? We look out for you, you look out for us. It's kind of the way things go, right? And David is act, asking in a very respectful way, isn't he? Here are your servants. I am your son, David. He's putting Nabal up above him, right? Very respectable and respectful. And Nabal isn't having it. He's a stingy guy, and he's not interested in just, oh yeah, David, here, here here's a bunch of stuff. So he covers his stinginess with this excuse that David is a nobody, that David is a rebellious servant breaking away from his master, traitorous. And hey, there's lots of guys doing that, lots of riffraff out there. And then he manages to refer to himself in a sentence seven times. Did you count that? Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men when I do not know where they are from? That's pretty good to be thinking about yourself in this way. Now, does Nabal not know who David is? Well, he calls him the son of Jesse. He knows who his dad is. And it would kind of like, I don't know who Winston Churchill is. Who did you say you were again? That is not possible. So Nabal is covering up his greed and his ingratitude by snubbing David. Hey, I just told David to go get stuffed. Har, 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 har. That means I'm somebody. And all Nabal did was 
start a chain of events leading to his own funeral. Did you notice what David says in verse 13? Every man gird on his sword. You know what that means? We're going to have a rumble. He's going to kill every last one of them, not just Nabal. He's going to kill everybody. He is so angry. Because Nabal is wrong in David's opinion. Does everybody see this? When Nabal says, who is David? I don't know who David is. David says, I am going to show you who I am. You will never forget who I am when I get done with you. You can't say stuff like that to me. You little. I can't say the words because I'm a pastor. But you put whatever insulting little contemptuous word you want to in there and shame on you because you know that word. <laughs> but he is absolutely, we would say in German, wutend. And they would say, I have a thick neck. All the veins are popping out. I mean, Nebel is not long for this world. Okay? So let's, let's read verse 14. Now one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled them. But the men were very good to us, and we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. They were a wall to us both by night and day, all the time we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know and consider what you will do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his household. For he is such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. Wow. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five seahs of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 cakes of figs, and loaded them on donkeys. And she said to her servants, go on before me, see I'm coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. So it was as she rode on the donkey that she went down under the cover of the hill. And there were David and his men coming down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belongs to him, and he's repaid me evil for good. May God do so, and more also to the enemies of David, if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. Now when Abigail saw, saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David, and bowed down to the ground. So she fell at his feet and said, On me, my lord, on me let this iniquity be. And please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. Please let not my lord regard this scoundrel Nabal. 
For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my learn who, whom you sent. Now, therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek harm from my Lord be as Nabal. And now this present which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord, and evil is not found in you all your days. Yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life, but the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the pocket of a sling. And it shall come to pass when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you ruler over Israel that this will be no grief to you nor offense of heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood without cause or that my Lord has avenged himself. But when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. So, back in verse 14 there, one of Nabal's men tells her what has happened. And he correctly reads the situation. And he says, you know what? If you don't do something, we're all going to be dead. That's pretty good insight, isn't it? This is not good. And do you know we can't say anything to Nabal at all? Because we can't talk to him. He's not going to listen to us. So she takes charge. And she starts saying, load that up. Grab those. Get those. Get those. Everything, load them up. Send them out. And then she gets on a fast donkey. <laughs> we got to roll here, boys. <laughs> and she takes off. And here's David saying, you know what? This guy doesn't know which end is up. I have protected him, and he has reviled me. And, you know, God do so to my enemies if I leave one man that belongs to him alive. I am going to kill this guy. So he is all set to just wipe out all that Nabal has. And here comes Abigail on a donkey. A beautiful woman falls down on her face before him. That doesn't happen every day, does it? So here's a beautiful woman who just humbled herself before David. He says, okay, you've got my attention. What do you want about? But it's not the beauty that saves. It's her understanding and her wisdom. She brings wisdom into this situation. Now she takes full responsibility for this insult. She had nothing to do with it. And 
David knows this. But here's the wisdom. She says, do not let my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal. There in verse 25. That's wisdom. Do not pay attention to him. He's a fool. That is significant. He does not deserve serious attention. He does not deserve your anger and your focusing on him and making him a bigger deal than he is. He's nothing for you to be concerned with. His opinion doesn't count. Now, she says in verse 26, the Lord has held you back. Well, she's hoping that is the outcome. But she's saying right now this second, the Lord has held you back from doing two things you shouldn't do. And that is bloodshed and avenging yourself. Now, the Lord doesn't think either of those things is a good idea. And if you think about it for a minute, you realize I'm right. That's pretty audacious, isn't it? She's reminding him of how the Lord is. How does he behave towards people? Now, judgment belongs to God. That is his area that belongs to him because only he can judge righteously. And it says in the law, do not avenge yourself. So she's saying, he, God, is going to repay Nabal. You don't have to do this. Only God's judgment counts. She says, here's the gift for the young men. That's not a problem. But she also says, remember that the Lord is going to make you an enduring house. You fight the battles of the Lord. She's telling him who he is. It's not what Nabal thinks he is. Oh, I just told David to go get stuffed. And you're not who you think you are. You can't talk to me like that. I'll show him I'm a fighting, killing machine. And you fuss with me at your own peril. Do I have your attention? Good. <laughs> Satisfying though that might be in the moment. Who is David really? David is God's man called by God to do God's will. So as such, he is what God says he is. Not what a dip thinks he is, and not even what David himself thinks. David is responsible first to the Lord. So because he represents God, it's important that evil 
not be found in him all his days. And this will come back to get you. You will regret this sometime later. Do you see that? But you know, God is gonna do for you everything that he said he was gonna do for you. He will appoint you king. He will build you an endearing house. You don't want to regret this. So, you know, when all these good things happen to you, when God blesses you, remember me. And you know, David responds to her. There in verse 32, he said to her, blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed is your advice and blessed are you because you've kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, surely by morning light no males would have been left to Nabal. So David received from her hand what she had brought him and said to her, go up in peace to your house. See, I have heeded your voice and respected your person. So David says, you're right. You're totally right. So it's wise for David to just ignore this fool and not pay him any more attention. Let him be a fool. And you're right, it would color my whole reign of being king that I had avenged myself and done the very same thing that Saul is doing right now. So then in verse 36, now Abigail went to Nabal and there he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him for he was very drunk. Therefore she told him nothing, little or much, until morning light. So it was in the morning when the wine had gone from Nabal and his wife had told him these things that his heart died within him and he became like a stone. Then it happened after about 10 days that the Lord struck Nabal and he died. So when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept his servant from evil. For the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal on his own head. And David sent and proposed to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David had come to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her saying, David sent us to you to ask you to become his wife. Then she arose, bowed her face to the earth and said, here is your maidservant, a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. So Abigail rose in haste and rode on a donkey, attended by five of her maidens, and she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and so both of them were his wives. But Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was from Galam. So here's Nabal, there back in verse 36. And he's having a great time because he was very, 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 very drunk. 
And he's having a great time. And he's throwing stuff and said, I told David to get stuffed. And he's feeling like he's on top of the world. And then the next day, he's having a big hangover. And Abigail comes in and says, you came this close to getting killed. And it says his heart died within him. He became like a stone. A lot of people feel like he must have just had a stroke. And then 10 days later, he's dead. So that's it. All of a sudden, his end comes just like that. Now David is grateful that God intervened for him. He didn't have to lift a finger. He didn't have to do anything that he's going to regret. He says, wow, God, thank you for taking care of him. You know, it's okay when God kills somebody. There's nothing you can say. And all David has to do is be God's man. That's an important lesson. And then he takes Abigail to be his wife. Now that's kind of the happy ending we would look for, right? I mean, she's smart and she's beautiful. Wow. Why not? Well, there are some complications here. David is beginning to exercise the right of kings to make more than one marriage for political reasons. And he's already married this Ahinoam of Jezreel. That seems like a political alliance because she's from a strategic part in Judah. But then the writer also notes that he was already married even then to Saul's daughter, Michael. It's a mess. It's a mess. And because it's complicated, we're going to leave it at that. Do you want any deep moral messages here? Marry one woman at a time, if you can. That's pretty difficult as it is. Don't get any more complicated than that, okay? Don't tell you, Pastor Rob said, marry a bunch of people. That's not a good idea. But here's, here's the takeaway from this. David is learning a tremendously important lesson. Who am I? How am I supposed to look at myself? And the answer is, I am who God says I am. And his opinion is the only one that counts. And it doesn't matter what anybody else says. Because he's learning. I am responsible to him. My job is to please him only. And I cannot determine how people are to treat me. But I am responsible for how I react. So how do you deal with fools? Well, this is where Proverbs 26 comes in. And you know this one because it's hard. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will also be like him. 
Answer a fool as his folly deserves, that he be not wise in his own eyes. That he not be wise in his own eyes. Everybody with me? Do not answer a fool according to his folly, but answer a fool according to his folly. Right? If a fool says, who are you? And you reply, I'll show you who I am. You're already wrong. You're playing the wrong game. This game is called, it's important that people think well of me. This is a foolish game. You're supposed to answer a fool as he deserves, which is ignore him. Don't give him any reaction. Don't give him any reaction. Because fools tend to enjoy the reaction. That is what they're going for. Oh, look what I did. I wound this guy up to 500. He popped a cog. Look at that. He came apart at the seams. Ha, what a great day. So you answer a fool as he deserves. Ignore him. Do not give that fool anything, anything to enjoy. Let God, God deal with him. Now, remember that Samuel died at the beginning of this chapter. Remember verse 1? And look what happens there. The Israelites gathered together and lamented for him. All of Israel comes together for this funeral because Samuel has died. Now, this is significant because he is a man who was called by God. And always, he was God's man first. That's what his mother drilled into him that he would know, do you know why you exist? Because I prayed to God for you and he answered my prayer, you exist because of God. You are God's man for his purpose. That's who you are. So that Samuel could go to a cesspool like Shiloh at the age of three and never be swerved by Eli and his worthless sons. Never ever be tempted. Hey Samuel, we're all smoking. You want to smoke? You're cool if you smoke. And Samuel goes, And Hophni and Phineas go, that kid never pays us any attention at all. Who does he think he is? But that's the question, isn't it? Who do you think you are? Who do I think I am? If you ask Samuel, he says, I'm God's man. I exist because God wanted me to exist. I exist for him. His purpose is my purpose. And so... He becomes the ruler of Israel. Does it go to his head? 
does he start saying, hey, I'm hot stuff. I can have anything I want. He goes, nope, I don't want your donkey. I don't want anything that belongs to you. Because I'm God's man, I have to stand before God. I want to just administer justice in the name of God. That's it. So keep your honors. And then it came to the point where they said, look, you're old, you're done. Now give us a king like all the other nations. And Samuel is upset. So he goes to the Lord and he prays. And God says, well, now you know how I feel. Because this is all they've ever done to me. And now you're with me. Now you know how I feel. So Samuel's kind of put on the side. And yet, he doesn't say, well, that elder did this, and that elder did that, and I hate them all, and I'll kill them, kill them all. He says, nope, I'm not going to sin against God. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to keep praying for you. So now, he's gone. And all Israel is there in Ramah. And you know what they're saying? They're saying fabulous things about him. Almost wish you could be there to hear it. That'd be fun, wouldn't it? Do you think Samuel cares about that? See, he's standing in the presence of God. And what anybody on the planet thinks about him is not relevant because he's standing before God and God says to him, well done, Samuel. Now your eyes see my face. Enter into the joy of your master. And that's what Samuel has lived for. That moment when he stands before God and he is received by God and honored by God. Now some pinhead on the planet says, well, he wasn't that nice to me. Does Samuel even care? what a pinhead thinks? So, the application to this is, you know, that God has called each one of us to represent him. That is, he has given us his eternal purpose and his grace in Christ Jesus. And really, first and foremost, we are what he says we are. That's who you are, is what God wants you to be. Now, you know, everyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus is going, is going to suffer persecution. Do you know where that comes from? It comes from fools. Because... Anybody who opposes the Lord Jesus Christ is a fool. Jesus is going to rule the earth from Jerusalem. There are few less politically correct statements in the world 
Jerusalem is the wrong place and not Jesus. But that's what the Bible says. Can you imagine? When Jesus comes back, he's not riding a donkey. He is going to slay his enemies with the sword that comes out of his mouth. Nobody's going to lift a tongue against him. No dog is going to bark against him when he wades through his enemies, trampling the winepress of God, and the blood comes out up to the horse's bridles for how long is it? 1,200 miles. Nothing in the world is going to stop that. Anybody who's opposed to Jesus is a fool. It's not going to end well. So how do we deal with fools? How do we deal with the opposition that we will meet from fools? Well, ignore them. That is the proper answer to a fool, is ignore them. Their opinion does not count. Now, we do not regard them, nor are we intimidated by their threats. We sanctify the Lord Jesus in our hearts, and we are ready to make a hope, a defense for the hope that we have. Because our trust in Jesus is reasonable. It's defendable. We're not crazy. This is only right and prosper, proper to submit to him, to follow Jesus, and to stick up for him even in front of fools. We cannot determine how people treat us, but we are responsible for how we react. So you know, what, what's really on my mind is that we're only here for a short time. We are sojourners passing through. And so we need to keep our eyes on where we're going and who we're going to see. That's who we're responsible to. And it's not what people think about me. It's about what does God think? I want to live to please him. Let's pray. We came in here today not thinking about dying, but we get faced with it and reminded that we're not going to be here forever, that the clock is ticking, our time is limited, and therefore, what kind of people should we be? We thank you that you're here with us. 
it's awesome to think about not living here, being in your presence. We all have to deal with fools, Heavenly Father. And we used to be foolish ourselves. So help us. Help us to be filled with your spirit, not hate anybody. Help us to represent you. Fill us with your spirit and give us your love and joy and peace patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Help us to ignore fools and help us to give out your word. Thank you, Lord, that you're with us and that you're for us. Be glorified in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.